Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Neil Howe with us. We'll take calls with Neil next hour here on Coast to Coast. Neil, what was it that got you interested in what we will call generational history? Um, well, just seeing what generations have done. You know, um, I grew up with uh, boomers, uh, and I saw what their generation has done. Um, <laughs> started out with such promise. Now boomers are getting blamed for everything. Yeah. But, but totally aside from the blame, uh, it has always fascinated me how different generations can look at life so differently. You know, we, 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 we now see millennials who are so, um, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of older Xers and boomers, just behave differently. You know, they, um, they're, they're generally, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're risk averse. Uh, they wanted, they, they're really seeking these very sort of structured, sheltered environments. And, and we see that in the workplace. We see that even in, in politics. And, and we're seeing kinds of, of behavior and outlooks on life, which sometimes makes us think it's, this is less like us or less like what we're becoming than maybe something we would have associated with our parents. You know, Igor Stravinsky used to say that every generation declares war on its parents and makes friends with its grandparents. Yeah. And, and, I, and I do see that. Yeah, I mean, he's we right. see that, for instance... The, the fourth generation actually is, is, is generally very, very similar to each other, right? So the, the generation that raised your parents is generally very similar to the, gener- the generation that you have become. That's where we get along with the grandparents sometimes more than the parents. Exactly, exactly yeah. so. And, um, and so we see a lot of these, and it it's also explains why, and these are generally the, you know, the, the parents of our parents, uh, are generally the ones who are sort of fading from memory. And it's also why in terms of, of cyclicality, the sort of natural cycle that we see, the cycle we're entering, because the whole cycle takes 80 or 90 years, is generally the cycle just beyond the living memory, right? No one mm-hmm. really remembers what, what the world was like uh, the last time we were here, right? So we're always entering uh, a kind of a mood or a set of challenges that no one, no one today alive can no, any longer remember, right? And that's why this last decade, which has had so many similarities to the, to the 1930s, you know, it, it was in the wake of this tremendous financial crisis, these new problems of growing inequality between rich and poor, the dissolution of unions, the... the, um, the, uh, 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 the, the you know, problems with productivity and living standards. And then the, 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 whole, the whole issue of what's happening around the world, right? The rise of these authoritarian regimes or populism and all of this stuff. And, and we weren't here. The, the, the great power alliances were all breaking up. You remember back then it was the League of Nations. Today it's, you know, NATO and UN. Mm-hmm, and, that's right. and, and in other words, you begin to see back in the 30s, everyone was living together with their parents. They were doing it in these big Victorian homes. You remember back in all those Frank Capra movies, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, families, well, they're doing it again today. It's a right? wonderful life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, today, but today they do it in McMansions, you know. It's, it's boomers living with their millennial 
uh, adult kids. But my point is, is that the last time we were here, no one really remembers it anymore. You know, you'd have to go out and actually ask one of those, one of those uh, D-Day veterans, and there, there are not many left anymore. What, right? what is it point. about, Neil, what is it about the music, for example, for the generations that continues to change as well? Because, you know, my dad was, uh, was the GI generation. His music was different from my mother's, which was in the silent yeah, and then the boomers, mine it was way different. And then uh, my kids, the Xers, uh, their music f- favors were different. And then my granddaughters and my grandsons, they're millennials. They're different. Why does the music change so much for those different generations? Music is an early indicator of generational change because the music is such an intense focus of people in their teens. Um, it really is. In other words. You look at a lot of other things. You look at um, you look at um, uh, movies. You look at TV shows and so on. Much broader, you know. There's a there's kind of a, a a much broader distribution by age, but the age bracket for for pop music is very narrow, and that's why the musical trends is 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 just so clear. I mean, that's kind of your early warning sign for looking at the appearance of new generations. You're right. We've seen that, and we we've we've seen that continuously. I, um, but 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 the point is, yes, we've seen, you know, we we saw you know ragtime and blues with the missionary generation. Then came along the lost generation. It was jazz, which is a dangerous music. I mean, jazz was jazz was a word for sex, and it was it was uh, it was the 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 whole rise of the Harlem Renaissance. You also had this enormous migration of African Americans, just hugely enlivened, you know, the the culture in the North during the 1920s, mm-hmm. and gave rise to this 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 crazy wild mix. Uh, put the roar into the Roaring Twenties, really, and, and it became popular throughout much of America. That was kind of the wildness of the lost generation. Then you had the GI generation take all that jazz and homogenize it and make it much more collegial and upbeat, and that became the big band sound. That became the swing band. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, and, and they're and gone that now. Was much more, that, was, uh, that was more orchestrated, bigger scale, uh, more kind of upbeat, kind of more wholesome. And the GIs did that actually with a lot of lost generation trends, made them more wholesome, cleaner, sort of, um, you know, what we finally remember, boomers remember with kind of distaste back in the 1950s, kind of saccharine, sweet, you know, completely mm-hmm. homogenized culture. And of course, boomers came with music that appalled and horrified uh, their, their parents. So much so that when the GI generation finally retired, and the first members of them started retiring in the mid 1960s. Their idea of retirement was a community in the middle of the desert, you know, with names like Leisure World and Sun City, so they could get away from their kids. And these these original communities had age-restricted covenants, so young people could not move anywhere near so that they could listen to their Benny Goodman in peace and not have these (laughs) these horrible, you know, rock music. The Beatles. Kids that that always, that they, (laughs) they never liked. And they knew these kids hated everything they'd spend their lifetime building, right? So anyway, that was that was a that was a big generation gap. And remember, that's when everyone started talking about the great generation gap, um, and that was a very serious thing because a lot of those fissures between boomers and their and their you know greatest generation parents never healed. Well, um, and, and also uh, clothes styles and things like that oh, change God. for the generations yeah, dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Hair, hairdos, everything. 
but but particularly we forget in that in that era, the sixties and seventies, particularly late sixties, seventies, how how extreme and how um, how how controversial and how upsetting those differences were. Uh, but you're right; the the differences themselves continually exist. I mean, today they're not upsetting. I mean, you look at millennials, and no one gets upset how they dressed. You know, they may. <laughs> They may wear flip-flops to work or something because no one told them the rules about flip-flops, and if someone had told them the rules, they'd say, oh, gee, sorry, I'll do the right thing next time. Uh, boomers were different. Boomers wanted to provoke, right? Boomers wanted to transgress. They really wanted to Right. Now, the millennials seem like they want to fit in. They do. Yeah. They want to fit in. And the biggest problem I see in workplaces with you know older people grousing about them is that the older people have never really told them what the rules are. They just assume the kids ought to know what they are. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult for millennials to figure out things like dress codes because, of course, boomers and Xers have no dress codes. Right? So <laughs> how are these young people supposed to know how to dress? So the young people are actually, and there's an interesting thing about millennials, they're constantly looking for standards. They're looking for conventions. Uh, but, they're, but, they're, but their parents and older people refuse to give them a convention. Uh, so it creates a kind of a, a weird... Um, uh, uh, an awkwardness that uh, was much the opposite of what of what boomers faced. You know, boomers in the late sixties they knew what conventions were. You know, their parents had all kinds of conventions. Sure, uh, how to dress, how to talk, uh, and boomers didn't want to follow them. And here you have these these millennials. You know, keep asking older generations. You know, gee, what what is what's expected of me? <laughs> and they didn't never get an answer. What about Neil technology? Technology, does that help change some of these generations as well, or do the generations change the technology? That's a great question, and your last comment was absolutely perfect, because that's what I tell people all the time. People are constantly asking me, how does technology shape a generation? You know, it's like, it's like the, the mobile phone comes along, or the internet comes along, and it just shapes everyone, right? So it's this random, exogenous thing that just sort of happens, and then we're all kind of randomly shaped. We're just passive recipients of technology. I don't believe that's true. I believe the causation is reversed in exactly what you just said. It's not that generations sh- sh- technology shapes generations. Generations shape technology. Mm-hmm. And a great example of that was back in the 1980s. You remember Reagan used to say, the microchip was going to bring down dictators everywhere in the world. And then President Clinton and Al Gore used to say the same thing. The Internet was going to bring down dictators, you know, and then Tiananmen Square, oh, my God, we know that that's the first, you know, it's the death knell for any authoritarians. And, well, look what's happened. Yep. No, no, the, the, the authoritarians just learned how to reverse all, those, all that technology and use it to police to police people and actually have an even, even, even harder, you know, iron fist on their populations. And now they can truly control everything because now with these monitoring technologies and this face recognition, uh, on every city, for example, in China, what they saw the, call the social credit system, people are graded on everything. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. So, so here's my point. Technology follows the social mood. The, te- the technology is not shape the social mood. The technology reflects it, and and that's an important part of 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 how I look at 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 how this whole system works. You call the generation uh, Xers thirteeners, not Xers. How come? Well, I did back in the beginning. 
but, you know, after Doug Kuplin's book. I mean, the, the funny story is, is that in our original book, yeah, we called them 13ers, and, uh, but we also, but the, but the generation after them, we called millennials. And, of course, that name caught on, and, you know, that's what everyone uses now. And, you know, Advertising Age, a year later, came out with this term called Generation Y, and that was popular for about 10 years, and then finally, you know, ad age kind of threw in the towel, and they said, okay, well, I guess, you know, how is right, you know, just, you know, they grumbled, and we had, I think, back at the office a little, little bit of champagne, and kind of congratulated ourselves. But here's the interesting thing. Doug Kuplin wrote his book, his novel, Generation X, about a year and a half or two years after we did Generations, and that book gave the name to Gen X, right? I mean, you know, that was Gen X. And, and Doug Kuplin was born in 1961, which I would regard as kind of the first birth cohort of, of Generation X. Um, and, and he wrote that book. But the irony then is, George, is that, and, I, and I, tell, I tell this to Xers all the time to make them feel even, you know, worse about their lives than they already do. <laughs> and that is that the, the generation that came after them was, got its name before they did. I mean, imagine that, right? Yeah. So we, yeah. <laughs> millennials got their name in 1991 when, when they were still kids, you know, still little kids. And, and, and Xers had to wait until later when they were practically in their mid-30s. So, uh, again, you remember I talked earlier about <laughs> active and recessive generations. That's a sign of being in a recessive generation, right, when, when you don't even get a name uh, until much later than everyone else. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.